This is Game Designed Unboxed, inspiration to publication on the No Direction Network. Danielle, Denise, and Ben interview tabletop designers on the games they've made. Together, they unbox how a game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Ben, Danielle, and Denise for Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication, episode 12, Control. Today, we are joined by Julio Nazario, designer of Control by Pandasaurus Games and Holy Festival of Colors by Floodgate Games, not to mention a co-host of the super fun Building the Game podcast. Thank you for setting aside some time today to sit down with us, Julio. Thanks for having me, Ben, Denise, Danielle. It's uh, great to be here. So great to have you. Now that we've got the easy stuff out of the way, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came into board game design? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so I've been designing games for about o- almost four years now. It started, I started in July of 2017. Um, I was, I was out on, I, I, I'm a civil engineer by trade and, and I work for the forest service. I was out with a coworker and we we're talking about all these different types of trees in the forest. And of course, I don't know anything about trees. I'm just an engineer, right? So, uh, he's talking about yellow pine, red maple, black walnut, white white walnut. Um, and, and then I'm like, wow, all these trees have colors associated with them. And at the time, I had just really gotten into board games. You all know how that is. You know, it, it hadn't been even uh, just a couple months, and I was already down the rabbit hole of playing board games. And, and I thought, you know, all these trees have colors associated with them. Maybe there's a game in here somewhere. And that's kind of how my first design came into being called Timber Tactics, uh, with, which was never really uh, um, published or anything. But that's what started on the real rabbit hole of game design. And, and it's been uh, quite a roller coaster from there. That's wonderful. Um, and it's great to hear what inspired your very first game. I'm curious, what inspired you to design Control? Uh, was there a certain experience that also led to that game design? Yeah, for sure. I mean, one thing for me is that I like to work fast on my design. So Control, I think it was probably like my 20, 21st design or something. And and it came together fairly quickly. And it's funny because I got inspired by a, by a different game that, that was published at the time. And that was uh, Planet by Blue Orange Games. Oh yeah, um, that one's really cool. Yeah, it, it has that uh, you know that the the, the Gahedron, uh type of world, and you're putting magnetic tiles into it. It was really, it was such a wonderful game, great design, and I really enjoyed it. And and I had an idea for for I guess kind of like an area control game uh, of sorts that used connect connectables uh, at the time, and and I thought and that kind of. When I when I saw that game, I saw kind of the whole three dimensional aspect of how players can analyze that way, and 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 that one was just connections. But for control, I essentially thought maybe we could work on something simpler, you know, kind of like a cube. Everybody knows cubes, right? Um, and then you could use smaller cubes to connect to that bigger cube, and you're growing organically from there, or inorganically, right? Because it's all cu- very uh, cuby, right? Um, so for those, you know, for those that don't know, uh, Control is a 3D area control game in which players are trying to gain control over a big cube by placing smaller cubes over. It. I already said that. However. What's very interesting about it is that you only do one thing in the game. You take three cubes and you place them in a line. But here's the the catch. 
when you place them in a line, if since you're looking at it from three dimensions, the line can go in any direction. Of course, when they reach an edge, they will wrap around the cube. So that's obviously a little uh, more difficult to visualize without a, a visual to show. But essentially, it kind of you're basically wrapping around the cube, and players are holding the board in their hand, which is the cube. And of course, you also have these little flags that you're placing at the end of your turn to block other players' movement. And at the end of the game, you're going to be scoring your color from five different perspectives of the cube. So, of course, when you play a cube over somebody else's, you're blocking their points and you're putting more of your points. And the the more on the outer edges they are, the more faces of your little cubes you're showing. So it's a very, it's definitely a very tactile game um, and, and very simple as well. I was going to say, I think the hardest part of playing your game was me just remembering which side of the cube I'd already counted, because I'm pretty sure I was trying to count some extra faces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely one of those things that uh, when I first designed it, it was fairly straightforward that we would just hold the the completed board in somebody's hand, and then everybody would go to every direction and start uh, and count simultaneously, and then rotate Count simultaneously, rotate, rotate until everybody would count at the top at the end. So it would it was a little more uh, flowy, but I don't think that's something that made it to the to the pr- production rules. So they they were just kind of just count little by little type of deal, but we had a little more flow to it. Oh yeah, that would have been useful. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I won, but maybe I wasn't supposed to have been the winner. I may have counted incorrectly. No, that needs a, that that's a that's a, definitely a thing that you can. You can always check back because, of course, that doesn't change uh, after you finish the game. The points are still there. So you can just take a picture and and, and recount at any point. So. Oh, for sure. What did playtesting look like for this game, especially with it being this 3D experience? Well, I guess before we get into playtesting, I would say the, the prototyping part of it was a very interesting, of course, because... Um, when, when I first thought of the idea, it was exactly as basically what we kind of came out with, well, Predator's came out with in production. I wanted to have this Rubik's size cube um, that would be three by three in, in, in a three-dimensional aspect, and, and then these smaller cubes that would connect to, the, to them. And, and for me, it was kind of, well, maybe there's something out there that kind of works for me. And there are these interesting cubes called um, playing resources, connectable cubes. They're like uh, learning resources for school and stuff like that. And and maybe you have seen it at some point in your life, but there is actually what control uses as as cubes. Of course, Pandasaurus had to make their own. Um, And and I just ordered a bunch of them. I ordered probably like 300 of them and, and I made like two prototypes. And to make the bigger cube, I just made, I just took one color of the smaller cubes and, and built the big cube and just glued it together. Um, so, and, and that was kind of my original uh, prototype. Now for playtesting wise, um, it's interesting because when you have a tactile game, you just sometimes want to play around with it, right? So I, I had the original idea of, of having the smaller cubes and trying an area control game. But what the mechanisms, how it would take me there, it was still in flux. So I just took the cube and I started playing around with it. What I could do with it, what could be a little, uh, have a good flow between players. Um, because with a game like this, it's very, it's not just tactile, but it's, it's really tactical, right? 
uh, you can't really plan ahead. So you don't want players to wait a long, uh, too long. Of course, when the board is in your hand, it does help a little. But uh, it basically came together very quickly. We had uh, I'm part of the game designers of North Carolina, and and I had I invited some friends over for to play some games and play test games, and and I brought this at the end. I've been playing around with this kind of game, and and I just we just played it, and ba based on the original rules. And nothing uh, changed, essentially. The only thing um, that the original game did not have was the flags. Were you the one that decided to add the flags, or is that a publisher decision? How did that end up getting added? Yeah, it was me, because uh, the, that first, um, first playtest, the, the main problem of it was that people would just grow on top of each other. So after I played my three cubes, somebody, the person next to me would just play their three cubes in, uh, on top of me. And then I would play their three cubes on top of them. So it would just be a very, uh, not very interesting because that would be the best play. So I, I decided maybe I could have some sort of blocker so people could protect their, their blocks, right? In a sense. And that's where the flag came in um and and then uh i thought you know the flag could be interesting way to also block points at the end of the game because with a game like this there's only there is so very constricted but at the same time it, it you have to play around to make sure that the game is balanced to a certain extent and when you go first you definitely are setting yourself up for people going over you a, a little faster but with the flag of course going Uh, placing your flag for blocking at the end is uh, a little more advantageous when you go first. Um, but yeah, that was kind of the, the, basically the only change that I made uh, to control um, besides, I guess the other one through pro to, through the, the, the product, the play testing process was that you had to place your, your next cube on your next turn next to an existing cube of yours. So I remember that it used to be that you could play it anywhere. And that did allow also to just play it on top of other people. So that constriction definitely helped it to to progress in in, in the correct way. Really, really neat, Julio. Uh, I, I'll just go ahead. I want to put this, you know, on the air that uh, I played a lot of video games growing up. And so, you know, the fact that you've kind of made this sort of video game or digital aspect from like Katamari Damacy or uh, for any other Ratchet and Clank fans out there, like the different world, the mini worlds, I think they were called that Clank is rampaging around. And like now it's in your hand is just so, so awesome. And it's super cool that, yeah, it's become a puzzle, an interactive puzzle at that where, yeah, you're, you have this exactly that area control and you're denying people, you know, certain paths or different ways to block them off as best as you can while also yeah. pushing yourself forward or advancing. Yeah. It just, really smart and so quick you said you know oh 20 designs no big deal and then it comes together yeah after like maybe the first day which is super great uh yeah so no i mean it was definitely there's not a lot of times where a game comes together that quickly but the, the, for control it was that was definitely it because i do like to mess around with language independent designs i'm originally from puerto rico uh so my main language is spanish Uh, so I like to make sure that whoever's playing my game, doesn't matter what language you speak, as long as you know the, the base rules, you can play the game without any problem. Definitely right. Yeah. And, you know, to quickly veer over, yeah, to Holy, there's not, I don't think any language, just numbers uh, in that game. So absolutely still uh, ringing true in those values, 100%. Um, it'd be great to know, yeah, if there was like a special 
memory or like an especially memorable moment uh, either during the game or way back when during conventions, seeing people play uh, that you can recall that just will always stick with you about control specifically? Oh, yeah. Uh, so I, I have two and they were both on the same conventions. So uh, I think this was um, PAX Unplugged in 2018. I was in the Unpub room just playtesting different games and I had Control with me. And Control was fairly new at the time. I think that was the only convention I, well, I, I well, it was just one of two conventions that I took it to. Um, and I was just playtesting it and, and I knew it was ready because after playtest, there wasn't, you know, the feedback was just based on the production and that kind of stuff. It's not really on the fun aspect and, and people were just get so involved in the game. And, and one of the ones that really sticks out was a mom and a daughter that were playing the game. And, you know, the daughter was, I don't know, maybe eight, uh, or 10 and, and they were just so involved and the daughter was just you know, rampaging, putting their cubes over mom. And, and I do have a great, really great picture of her just uh, after they counted their points, the daughter won and she was sticking her tongue out at her mom um, because she won the game. And, and that was such a great memory mm-hmm. uh, of that one. So yeah, that's uh that's, that's an especially good one. That is so sweet. Um, and I, I feel like those moments, they do really stay with you when you get to see it come alive for folks who are enjoying it for the first time um, with their families. That's so wonderful. Yeah. Uh, your designs um, sound like they very much are inspired from your work as an engineer. And I'm curious how that training and background um, intersects with your game design. Uh what are the ways that it influences and uh, approaches how you, um, yeah, how you design a game? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so a little more background. So, I'm a civil engineer. Um, so, for those of you that don't know, civil engineers deal with uh, the construction aspect of things uh, and roads and uh, even project management to some to some degree. And in my job, I. We, we in the Forest Service, we have smaller projects. So you essentially have to be in the project from start to finish. So you get to go through doing the surveying part of things when you're doing maybe like a like a bridge installation on the forest uh, to to doing the, the cost estimation and that kind of stuff. So for something like surveying, you have to be really good at visualizing uh, a certain topography of of the land in a 3d dimensional aspect by just looking at it you're trying to take that information and put it on the computer um so i definitely like to see things from from more than one dimension you know i, I like that board games are, are a great medium of play and it has so many aspects that people enjoy but one that i saw lacking at the time when i first started was that the, the lack of using three-dimensional components and and points of view in 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 games and gameplay because there's there was a lot of things going on you know like uh you would have figures and and different things that look really cool on the table but that was just it you know they it was mainly gimmicks that um you know they look great uh people enjoy them but it didn't really contribute to the gameplay and another thing with the cost estimation type of thing, I like to be, you know, cost effective with my projects. I want to make sure that they can be done at a certain cost. And and one of the things I, I really enjoyed was playing around with every single component that a game has. And especially the one that people don't really think about, 
but it's always there is the box. Um, so, so the box is probably the most expensive component that a game has, and it's usually just used to protect the game, and that's great. But it, the, uh, a game could have so much more if you can use the box to a certain aspect of the gameplay. Um, and that's actually uh, Holy originally used the box and the insert as the whole uh, tiered mechanism of first floor, second floor, and third floor. Um, so, so that's definitely one thing that hey, if, if it's gonna be there. Uh, let's try and use it, and, and and in a sense that it enhances the gameplay because you can still use it, and it can still be gimmicky. And I I have done that too because it, sometimes it, having a visual representation is great. But if you can enhance enhance your gameplay as well, that's just a, a great bonus. I love the fact that you are so conscious of your decisions when it comes to the manufacturing side because knowing since that is my day job, quoting out what a game is going to cost, it is really interesting to see that designers are thinking through all those decisions and contemplating how they can use one piece as two different pieces. Like when someone designs a card that is two pieces of information or they're double-sided or taking the box, like you said, and incorporating it into design. That's awesome. Thanks. As far as pitching control, was that always your intention to find a publisher, pitch it, or did you consider self-publishing? So I'm, that's one thing that in the, in the four years that I've been doing this, uh, self-publishing has never been something that has gone through my mind. Um, maybe, maybe at the start, because at the start I was just doing whatever. I didn't know what I was doing, but once I started getting more (laughs) information on how the industry worked, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to be running a business for board game publishing because that's just sounds like a lot of work. And I, and what I really enjoy is the design aspect of things. And as long as I keep designing, I keep working on new stuff. I'm always excited for the next thing. Uh, and and for a lot of people doing the the running a company and and quoting materials and shipping and and customer support and service and all that, I mean that's great for a lot of people that may enjoy it, but that's not me. I really just enjoy the design aspect. So yes, from the start, I was definitely going to be uh, pitching around. That's always what I've done for for my games for sure. And how did you know that this game was ready to be pitched? So at the time, I guess um, I had already signed a couple of games, and and I, I kind of knew when, especially through playtesting, that w- what people start talking about when you when you ask for specific types of feedback definitely lets you know to a certain extent. You're they're just talking about maybe the the visuals, the the the. Um, um, UI, I guess the, the graphic design of the game and, and the product in a sense, not so much about the gameplay. And especially, of course, uh, you got to make sure that what you're seeing through the playtesting is that they're enjoying the game. And and you're enjoying the game too, because at some point, when you, even as a designer, when you're playtesting your own game, and sometimes you just forget um, that it's a design and it's, you're just playing the game. And that's definitely one of those uh one of those elements that if that's happening to you, then the game is definitely getting there, if not already there. And I was definitely experiencing that with Control. Super reassuring to hear, Julio. Yeah, that is totally true on so many levels, I think. And yeah, when you're able to just kind of, even though you've seen however many versions, you know, um, iterations and stuff that have made it to the chopping block uh, and survived or not, and still, yeah, having a, a soft spot for your design truly speaks to just how good it pretty much is. 
Um, yeah. And I think just maybe one last question about kind of the pitching process. So uh, I've seen you around the convention circuit, you know, uh, two years ago, three years ago. And I'd like to know, had you ever like created sell sheets for your games or filmed videos to try and uh, link to p- different publishers? Or what is sort of your process that you could maybe uh, Im- impart on uh, our listeners today? Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I have always uh, done sell sheets for my games. I have always made sure that I have rules ready for before I pitch a game. Because if you get to a situation where a publisher is interested in the game and you don't have the rules ready, that that's definitely a, a position that will make you look bad. But yeah, sell sheets are definitely a, a great tool. I have always done them. They're a great just one-page page document that has all the essential information for your game, the premise, the hook, how many players, how long does it play, what's the age range, a picture here or 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 a picture there, and and of course um, a component list that helps as well, and, and your contact information. That's a good uh, kind of list of what a sell sheet uh, is. And and to your point, the having a video. I have done uh, videos for my games, not all of them. Definitely the ones that are on the simpler side. I like to make videos that are less than a minute because people have definitely short attention spans, and when you're pitching to a publisher that sometimes you may not know. Uh, they they will give you the benefit of the doubt for about a minute. Um, and if you can't capture your game in a minute, that then um, maybe maybe that's not the game for 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 them in a in a sense because for especially for the kind of, of games that I design. Uh, but they're really useful, and I try to have like a QR code of a link to my video and put it on my sell sheet. So the sell sheet has the QR code and they just, if they have a physical copy of the sell sheet, they just scan it with their phone and they can see the video as well. Um, so those are really good tools for, for pitching. I wrote all of that down. You hit on everything. So yes, Julio, thank you. <laughs> when it comes to development, was there a lot that needed to be done following the signing of the contract? Um, so for Appendosaurus, it was interesting because at the time they, they were working with John Gilmore, uh, as their main developer. And, and it was essentially once they, I, I pitched the game and that was on, on, uh, on pub in, in 2019. Um, uh, that was March. So the game I started designing in November and it was, it was signed by April. Um, so uh, by, by that time, once I signed it, it was basically they had it in their hands and and that was it. Um, a lot of the publishers, they sometimes want designers to be involved. Sometimes they, they don't. They like to do their own thing. And and as a designer, I essentially, I, 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 I like to get involved, but at the same time, I want to respect the publisher's wishes. Um, of course, sometimes, you know, oh, it's my baby. It's my design. I want to make sure what's going on. Uh, but ultimately it's the publisher's responsibility that they're the ones taking the risk of taking this game up to publication and putting in the money. Uh, so whatever they decide goes. Uh, so, so yeah, they basically did the development on it and, and the game was released, uh, I guess a, a year later, um, a year, almost a year and a half, I guess. Uh, and, and as in development goes, uh, the one thing that they did change, so the game kept fairly uh, uh, rules-wise, say the same. The only thing that they added was the for the two-player game, they made it so uh, both players would use two different sets of colors. So there would be more of a mind game of, oh, okay, I'm using both yellow and, and pink, 
but I only have to, I'm going to score one of those at the end of the game. And of course your opponent doesn't know which color you're going to be scoring because you have like a card that you pick at the start of the game. Um, and, and that's one thing that they added. And I think it definitely helped, um, uh, uh, at least for that two player experience. I was going to say as a designer, what did you think was the sweet spot player count wise for this game? Um, well, it, it, it is as a designer is definitely, uh, I'm not very objective in this, but I think the game worked really well on all four. Uh, well, I guess two, three, and four, um, because, uh, uh, that was kind of my experience through playtesting. Of course, it is a very limited experience in that sense because you may have 20, 30, 100 playtests, but when that game comes out, it has hopefully, you know, a couple of, of, of 100 play, uh, play sessions, right? Um, and people have their own opinions of that. But I definitely thought that they all worked really well. So when they said that they were adding that uh, version of it, I was a little surprised, but I could see why they would do it. Uh, one of the things that I guess I didn't... Uh, like about that was that it would extend the gameplay length for a two-player game uh, because it essentially made the two-player game as long as a four-player game. Uh, but, but at the same time, having that, uh, that hidden information, I thought made it interesting and, and would be a good, um, a good decision in the end. And how long in total do you think it went from inspiration to the publication of this game? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, uh, to the oh, well, to the publication, I guess it was less than two years, uh, which is not normal, um, because you know a game can take more than a year to get signed and to get published. It can take up to two, three years sometimes. Um, so they definitely uh, were fast on the whole uh, production and publication of the game. So it's definitely not, uh, it's definitely an outlier when it comes to how long it took. No, that is amazing that between your own thought process, your playtesting, deciding it was ready, and then them getting it all good to go. That is a really quick timeline. Yeah, yeah. Julio, it's me, Ben. I'm back again. Uh, I asked you about <laughs> like one favorite example uh, or memory that came from Control. Is there one thing that like kind of you were racking your brain about that was just maybe a least favorite memory that you can think about? Um, whether it was kind of the design process, first coming up with the game idea, or the development process, were there any hurdles that you can recall? Mm, well... Uh, like like with every game, whenever there's there's a problem that you want to solve, that's that's for me is the fun part, right? It's the problem solving part of things, and of course that's the engineering me. How can I make this work in a in a better way by not adding any rules, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so so I think when the when I thought about the flags uh, as a as an interesting component to use every single turn to block other people's uh, placements and, and block points at the end. I thought that was such a simple solution for that problem that I had of people just piling on top of each other turn after turn. And that's what ultimately made the game work. Um, so at the start, obviously, it was it was frustrating because it wasn't working, but just having that burst of inspiration with the flag made it all um, work. Yeah, if I may, um, do you remember like when it was that you just kind of yeah came up with the flags uh between you know kind of having um, designed the game and everything yeah was it a quick thing or was it like maybe a couple months while you were thinking on it again um the the game i started designing it around november and i and i uh signed a contract in april 
So I remember November, I had the initial uh, play testing and, and basically in November, I already had the flags. Got so it. when I, when I brought it to uh, PAX Unplugged in December, that the game was basically what it ended up signing. At the time, I didn't know that the game was kind of uh, ready for for everything. But of course, there's the other process of I got to write the rules. And of course, for a game like this, that's 3D. I got to make sure that the rules are understandable and I'm not the best graphic artist, right? So for me to have a 3D uh, explanation in a 2D format, is definitely it was definitely a hurdle. But I, I, I'm, I'm be- I've been getting really good <laughs> at it lately. Awesome, yeah. <laughs> I love how the rule book is set up because you have that beautiful like green check mark, red X, like you can do this, you cannot do this with examples. And honestly, that's the best way to do it, especially since I know control has ended up in some mass market stores. So non-gamers can put it together pretty quickly, whether they can or cannot do something. Love it. So looking back, uh, four years ago, when you just got started with game design, um, knowing everything you've learned... Is there one piece of advice you'd want to give to yourself uh, or other aspiring designers? Um, yes. Um, I would say try to learn uh, about the industry a little faster, right? Because there's a lot to learn. But I think learning from other people is the best way to learn. Uh, and, and not because, you know, you just whatever people say, it's, it, it's a must, is that when you talk to a enough people and a lot of people say the same thing, then it must be true to a certain extent. Right. Um, so one thing that I did and, and I would do it all again and even more is, uh, listening to podcasts like your own podcast and many more that involve game design and just board game industry in general. Um, because it is something that unless you don't know how the industry works, you, you don't know where to start when it comes to stuff like this. Right. Um, you want to make sure to, okay, I want to, I, if my goal is to sign this game, where do I start? And a lot of people, that's definitely the the biggest hurdle. Um, and just making sure that you are, you study, you study on the industry in whatever way that is, that can be again, podcasts or videos or, or articles from different, uh, influential people in the industry that know their stuff. Right. Um, uh, I think it's definitely the best way to start because, uh, I did do a lot of, uh, first timer, uh, you know, mistakes. Like I, for my first game, I, I bought some art for it and I was doing like sign my NDA to play my game. And, and that kind of stuff is not really necessary. If, once you know the industry, how, how well, how tight it is and everybody knows each other and stuff like that. And of course, if I'm not going to be publishing my own games, then art is not really something that you have to uh, invest on. Um, You just want to have some, some stock art or just some, because as long as you're not selling your prototype or anything, you can use anything that you find and, and as a representation of what your game can be. I think that's really great um, advice. And given how many games you've designed over the last four years, uh, your persistence and that learning uh, as being central to making things real, it seems like was a really important part of the process of why and how control um, really moved quickly uh, through the process. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, for sure. 
So do you have any upcoming projects you're allowed to share with us? Well, I, I, I guess on this year, it's really interesting because with 2020, it was definitely a very different year for all of us, not just in, in the board game industry, right? Um, so for me, having my first games come out during 2020, it wasn't the best experience in a sense, right? Because while it was good to see them out and stuff like that, I one thing I really missed was just going to conventions and seeing people firsthand and, and experiencing my games and 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 that you know face-to-face uh, interaction with people is something that I definitely miss so it, hopefully with my future games coming out um, that will be a different experience so for 2021 since we're still in this situation with uh, covid and hopefully we're at the home stretch here um, a lot of publishers that I have signed my games with have decided to focus on their existing IP because those are the ones that uh, are currently selling and, and they don't want to take as many risks. So I do, I mean, I can say I do have a, a game with Talent Strike Studios and, and it's not haunted, it's something else now. And and I have a game with uh, Indie Game Studios and, and uh, um, uh, Apollo Games, which is a subsidiary of, um, I forgot their name. um academy games academy academy games yes (laughs) yes thanks um and and i got a couple of other stuff in in the works that i can't uh really talk about but those are kind of the the ones on the forefront there um but we'll we'll see what how it happens one thing's for sure i've learned to definitely have some um uh patience uh, because the industry is is fairly slow when it comes to stuff like this, and that's just fine. I can just focus on my own designs. I I have other stuff that I'm working on. Um, I'm actually uh, very excited at some some current projects that I'm working on with uh, Eric Lang. Um, uh, we were we've been in the talks with some publishers about two games that we're working on, and and we're, I'm really excited about those. Um, and couple of other stuff again i definitely it's been uh, i'm currently probably over 50 games at this point so um i'm always pitching what i have available and i have a couple of of uh probably like a dozen games under evaluation so it's always a waiting game see what happens next that's amazing how did you end up connecting with eric lang um, so with him, uh, he w- he used to work with Simon as their main developer, and I had some games that I wanted to pitch to Simon. So I I managed to uh, uh, set up an appointment with him to pitch him some games, and and was very impressed. He was interested in a couple of my games, and after he left Simon, one of the things he wanted to do, of course, you all know Eric Lang from uh, uh, Bloodborne and not oh well Bloodborne, yes, uh, but. Uh, uh, Blood Rage and and yep. Rising Sun and and Ank and all those big games, and he told me essentially that he wanted to go to the family market. He wanted to do games that were more more mass market, more more family friendly, um, simpler games. But of course, not not just because they're simple to play means that they're simpler, simple to design. Um, and and he just reached out um, and said that you know I really like what you did and what you showed me and and I think we could work really well together. Um, and of course, I took it as an opportunity to learn because he's uh, he's uh, a giant in this industry and what he does, and I've learned a lot for sure. And and uh, even when it comes to co-designing, I'm I'm very I'm not the best at co-designing with people because 
like I said, I like to work fast and a lot of people just don't do this for a living. And, and I kind of place high expectations on others uh, to work as fast as I do. Uh, but with Eric, obviously he, he does this for a living. So he has definitely met some great expectations and, and that's why we keep working on, on some projects. So we'll definitely hopefully have some, some stuff, um, coming out in the near future. That's so awesome. I look forward to seeing it. <laughs> I, I do too. Um, uh, with the, with the whole 3d aspect of things, one thing that I've definitely done, um, these, these last couple of years is that I, I wanted to grow. Um, of course, learning is always good, but how can you, how can I grow as a designer? What can I learn? And, and as a, as a, I like to deal with 3d aspects. So one of the first things that I, um, did for 2020 since I couldn't go to conventions was uh, learn new things. And of course, a lot of people have learned Tabletop Simulator because that's, a, that's the new uh, program to do playtesting because there's no getting together with people. But uh, I bought myself a 3D printer and that's one thing that has has brought my my designs to a whole other level for sure because it definitely allows me to to work on things that are not available. I, was, I struck some luck with control because I found those cubes that just worked really well but sometimes i get ideas of things that do not exist right so having a, a tool that allows you to to work on stuff like that is very very helpful and and people may think you know a 3d printer it seems like a expensive tool but the one i have it was probably like 200 dollars, and of course the the plastic is like 20 dollars a spool of one kilogram so it's uh it's just about learning how to use it um, and of course, that takes time. Um, and of course, time is a valuable resource for everybody. Um, so, but if you're really into that kind of stuff, that's definitely one uh, good investment that you can do. And and I really encourage it. I love that, Julio. I think we haven't had a lot of time to talk about the tools uh, that folks use in designing games. So it's really great to hear about the 3D printer. I have also found them to be very affordable and expensive sort of accessible compared to what it was, you know, five, 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, and that really is, uh, I hate to use the phrase, but a game changer, uh, <laughs> I love it. Kind of resource, uh, and, uh, I, I, it's a great recommendation. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And it's just wonderful as always to hear, you know, people continuing to invest in themselves, uh, whether or not it's design or something else related, but yes, listeners, I hope, uh, you know, today, you'll be inspired to uh, put down a little bit uh, of money on yourself. Yeah, how, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, thank you again for joining us on this episode of Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to, to Publication, Episode 12, Control. And perhaps an even bigger thank you to Julio. Thank you for joining us, sir. Of course, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. For anyone looking to find you or reach out, where and how uh, is the best way to do so? Uh, so I'm, I'm mainly found on, on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Hunasaru, which is J-U-N-A-Z-A-R-U. Uh, that's basically where I share everything that I'm working on that I can share about, right? Uh, but that's definitely one thing that has helped me a lot. Again, um, it's just such a great community. And wherever I, I'm working on something cool, I just share it there and, and I get some good feedback there. So if you're interested in seeing what I'm working on, you can go there. And there you have it. You can find me, Ben, on Facebook as Ben Moy and your friend Ben Moy designs board games. You can find me, Danielle Reynolds, at 
Instagram as Token Gamer, or you can find me on my website at www.dmrcreativegroup for literally everywhere else you may want to find me. And you can find me, Denise, on Twitter at year, Y-E-A-R, the number two, three, at year 23. Thanks, everyone, for listening and hope you don't lose control anytime soon. This has been another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.